0: Hello and welcome to the Anglo-Saxons in their own words podcast. My name is Danny. Today, we'll be looking at Anglo-Saxon poetry. I'll be reading from a collection of poems translated by R.K. Gordon, who was a professor at the University of Alberta in the early 20th century. This collection was first published in 1927 and last published in 1970. I came upon this volume in an antique store two years ago, and I have to say, I'm really glad I found it. The English language, of course, is one of the richest poetically to have evolved in the world, and there is a reason so many poets from English-speaking nations are revered worldwide. The interesting thing about Anglo-Saxon, or Old English poetry, however, is that its richness was not derived from its expansive vocabulary, as ours might be today, but rather from its sound. Many of us have heard poetry read aloud, and, while it can be enjoyable at times, I'm sure many of us can also recall occasions when the delivery has been totally off like when the teacher in your introductory English class asks everyone to take turns reading. Similarly, while Anglo-Saxon poetry is beautiful when read, it is when it is heard, especially in its original format, that it is most impactful. Old English had a unique rhythm to it, which would be unfamiliar to us today, and poetry was spoken aloud before it was ever written down. The use of recurring consonants was also particularly common in English verse. Again, an indication that these literary works shone brightest when repeated orally. It is therefore with a certain degree of regret that I must inform you all that I won't be reading any of these works in their original format. On a more positive note, however, you'll also all be able to understand what I'm saying. To give you a little more background on Anglo-Saxon verse as a whole, I want to start by reading to you the entirety of Professor Gordon's introduction. I found it really interesting, so I hope you do too. Plus, I kind of feel like this guy's work deserves to be
1: brought back to light 50 years after it went out of print. Let's listen in. Introduction This book contains translations
0: of English poetry, which was composed, roughly speaking, between AD 650 and 1000, or, in other words, from Widsith, which is perhaps the oldest English poem, to Maldon, which is the last great poem before the Norman Conquest. The coming of the French brought such great changes in language and in literary fashions that the older poetry seems somewhat remote from us. English poetry before the conquest may be roughly divided into two classes, heroic and Christian. The heroic poems deal for the most part with Germanic legend and history. About these poems, there is nothing distinctively English except the language. The stories they tell or mention, the kings and warriors they refer to, were known to all the Germanic peoples, not merely to the tribes which came over to Britain. The Christian poetry adapts and paraphrases the biblical narrative, records the lives of the saints, or uses verse for general moralizing. These religious themes were as much the subject of poetry after the Norman Conquest as before. Chaucer tells us the life of St. Cecilia as Chinnewulf tells us the life of St. Juliana. The Conquest changed the language and meter of the religious poetry, but the substance remained the same. Of the heroic poetry, we can form no final estimate, because we do not know the extent or worth of what has been lost. The ravages of the Danes from the end of the 8th century onward blotted out a flourishing literature in the north of England. Monastic libraries were destroyed. Practically the only Northumbrian poetry preserved has survived in a West Saxon translation, and not in its native dress. There Are indications that Beowulf was originally a Northumbrian poem. Beowulf has survived complete, not because it was necessarily the best of the old poems, but merely because it was luckier than its fellows. Waldhera and Finnesborough, of which we have only fragments, were probably in some ways better poems. The heroic poems Beowulf, Finisborough, Waldhera, Deor, and Widsith probably took their present form in the course of the 7th century. Their substance, however, comes from an earlier time, from the age which had just closed, extending from the 4th to the 6th century, and generally known as the Age of National Migrations, or, more briefly, as the Heroic Age. These poems reflect the tradition and the spirit of that past time, and we can learn from them something about conditions of life in the Heroic Age, just as we see in the Iliad and Odyssey, the Heroic Age of Greece. The way of living pictured in these English poems is not without nobility and the impression they leave is a corrective to the brief historical annals of the time, which tell largely of treachery and lust and bloodshed. No virtue is more insisted on in the poems than the loyalty a warrior owes his liege lord. This creed is well expressed in the words of Wiglaf when he exhorts his comrades to stand by Beowulf against the fire dragon. Quote I remember that time when we were drinking mead, when in the beer hall we promised our lord who gave us these rings that we would requite him for the war-gear, the helms, and sharp swords, if need such as this came upon him. He chose us among the host of his own will for this venture. He reminded us of famous deeds, and gave me these treasures, the more because he counted us good spear-warriors, bold bearers of helmets, though our Lord, the protector of the people, purposed to achieve this mighty task unaided, because among men he had wrought most daring deeds, daring ventures. Now the day has come when our lord needs the strength of valiant warriors. Let us go to help our warlike prince, while the fierce, dread flame yet flares. God knows that as for me, I had much rather the flame should embrace my body with my gold giver. It does not seem fitting to me that we should bear shields back to our dwelling, if we cannot first fell the foe, guard the life of the prince of the waiters. I know well that, from his former deeds, he deserves not to suffer affliction alone among the warriors of the Geats, to fall in fight sword and helmet, corslet and shirt of mail, shall be shared by
1: us both. End quote.
0: This personal allegiance is strengthened by the Lord's generosity, and the poems are full of praise for the Lord who knows how to give freely. He is called the giver of rings, the bestower of treasure, the gold friend of men. Prothgar is praised for his liberality to his followers and to Beowulf. And one of the reproaches brought against Heramod, of whom Hrothgar speaks, is that he gave not rings to the Danes. The minstrels, Widsith and Deor, both receive grants of land from their masters. The sad exile in The Wanderer recalls, quote, How in his youth his gold friend was kind to him at the feast. Quote. The poems reflect also another side of life in the heroic age the frequency of feuds. Beowulf has many references to bitter tribal fights. The feud of Hrothgar the Dane and Ingeld the Hethobord is settled by Hrothgar giving Freywaru his daughter in marriage to Ingeld. But Beowulf tells Higelac how the feud will break out again. There is too the tale of Finn of which Hrothgar's minstrel sings in Hall and of which we have another glimpse in the Finnesborough Fragment. Higelac is slain in an expedition against the Franks and Frisians and his son, Hirdred, is killed fighting against the Swedes. Nor do the poems refer only to tribal strife. There is frequent mention of quarrels between kinsmen. Unferth is taunted by Beowulf with having slain his brothers, and the treachery of Rothwulf is clearly foretold in Beowulf. Men were driven abroad by such feuds, or by the love of adventure and gain so Beowulf goes to the Danish court to cleanse the hall of the monster Grendel and is rewarded with princely gifts. Some of the pleasantest passages in Beowulf are those which describe the daily life of princes and warriors. The scenes in Hrothgar's great hall, Heorot, where men talk and drink mead and listen to the minstrel's song, and where the queen, Wealtheo, moves with courtesy among her guests. They are full of simple dignity. The style of these poems has a just claim to be called epic. It differs from that of the Homeric poems in degree, but not in kind. The range of style is considerable. It can be swift and grim, as in Beowulf's struggle with Grendel, or the great fight in the Hall of Finn, or it can possess a strange beauty, as in the picture of the mare where Grendel's mother lives. The voyage of Beowulf and his men to Hrothgar's court is a good example of steady, dignified narrative. The elegiac note also is often heard. Quote, there is no joy of the harp, delight of the timbrel, nor does the good hawk sweep through the hall, nor the swift steed stamp in the court. Violent death has caused to pass many generations of men. End quote. One mark of the style is the comparative absence of similes, but the frequency of descriptive phrases, known as kennings. As, for example, when Beowulf's boat is called the foamy necked floater, these are sometimes of great beauty and sometimes show the same kind of ingenuity which appears in a more expanded way in the riddles. The best introduction to the Christian poetry is the famous story of Cadman, told by Bede. Quote, This man had lived a secular life till he had reached old age and had never learned a song. And so often at the feast, when it was decreed for the sake of mirth, that each in turn should sing to the harp, when he saw the harp coming near him, Then in shame he rose from the banquet and went home to his house. One time, when he had done this, and had left the house where the feasting was, and had gone out to the cattle stall, for the care of them was entrusted to him that night, and had duly laid his limbs to rest there and fallen asleep, there appeared a man unto him, and hailed him and saluted him, and called him by his name, Cademan, sing me something. Then he answered and said, I cannot
1: sing, and so I left the feasting and came hither because I could not. He who spoke to him again said, Nevertheless, thou canst sing to me.
0: He said, What am I to sing? He said, Sing me the creation. When he received that answer, then straightway he began to sing in the praise of God the Creator, verses and words which he had never heard before. This is the order of them. Now must we render praise to the ruler of heaven, to the might of God, and the thought of his mind, the glorious Father of men, since He, the Lord everlasting, wrought the beginning of all wonders. He, the Holy Creator, first fashioned the heavens as a roof for the children of earth. Then, this middle earth, the master of mankind, the Lord eternal, afterwards adorned, the earth for men, the Prince all-powerful. Then He rose up from sleep, and clearly remembered all He had sung while He slept, and straightway, added in the same meter, many words of the song worthy of God, End quote.
1: He was received into the monastery of Whitby
0: under the abbess Hild, and there he passed his life in making poetry, quote, he sang first of the creation of the world and the beginning of mankind and all the story of Genesis, that is, the first book of Moses, and afterwards of the Israelites leaving the land of Egypt and of their entrance into the promised land, of many other stories from the Holy Scriptures, and of Christ's incarnation, and of his passion, and his ascension into heaven, and of the coming of the Holy Ghost, and the teachings of the apostles. And afterwards, of the fear of the judgment to come, and of the terror of punishment and torment, and of the sweetness of the heavenly kingdom, he made many songs. And likewise, also, he wrought many others of divine benefits and judgments. End quote. He died in 680.
1: Although the poems Genesis, Exodus, Daniel,
0: and Christ and Satan were for long ascribed to Cademan, it is probable that the nine lines quoted by Bede are all that we have of his work. But though Cademan's work is lost, Bede's description of it applies very well to the extant religious poems, to their scope and their spirit. The story brings out vividly the difference between the production of the old heroic poems and the new Christian verse, between Cademan, the poet-monk alone in his cell, and Hrothgar's minstrel, singing the tale of Finn to the warriors at their mead. But the break between the religious poetry and the earlier work is not complete. The old devices of style are carried on and adopted to the new subjects. So, for example, the fallen Satan in Genesis, B, with his loyal band of followers, is described in terms that would suit a Germanic chieftain. Abraham's rescue of Lot and the fight at the opening of the Elaine are told in the phrases of the old battle poetry. Moses leading the Israelites is called the Glorious Hero. The poet, who describes St. Andrew's mission to the strange land of Myrmidonia, knew and remembered Beowulf's mission to Hrothgar. In The Dream of the Rude, the most beautiful of all the religious poems, Christ is described as the Young Hero, and the disciples are faithful warriors. The religious poetry is of very unequal value. The later Genesis, Genesis B, and The Dream of the Rood, are as good as anything in Old English poetry, but too often we get merely lifeless moralizing in conventional phrases. Except for the group of poems formerly thought to be by Cademan, most of the religious poetry has at one time or another been ascribed to Chinnewolf. He is the undoubted author of the works he has signed, Elaine Juliana, part at least of The Christ and
1: The Fates of the Apostles. The following poems, Guthlac, The Phoenix, Andreas, The Dream of the Rude, Physiologus, Riddles,
0: have all been attributed to him. In spite of a great deal of discussion, nothing has been certainly discovered as to his identity. He was probably born about 750 and was a Northumbrian or Mercian. Chinnewolf is as deliberate and conscious an artist as Tennyson. His grace and his mastery of rhetoric are different from and inferior to the more solid qualities of Beowulf, which presents dramatic situations and human character. But English poetry had not lost the power to deal well with great simple heroic themes. The poem on the Battle of Maldon, written only a few years before AD 1000, shows the old strength and nobility. There is no sign of weakness or exhaustion. Among the most interesting poems in Anglo-Saxon are the lyrics. Or, more properly, perhaps, the elegies The
1: Seafarer, The Wanderer, The Wife's Lament, The Husband's Message, The Ruin, and Wolf and Aid Waker.
0: These pieces have much in common, for with the exception of The Husband's Message, they are sorrowful in mood, and the speaker looks back to happier times which have vanished. The Ruin, mutilated through the text, is perhaps the finest of them. Practically all the poetry is written in the same kind of verse. The main principles of the meter are simple. Each line is made up of two half-lines, which are separated by a caesura and joined by alliteration. Each half-line has normally two feet, and each foot is made up of an accented part and a varying number of unaccented syllables. The alliteration which links the two half-lines falls on these accented syllables. Words beginning with the same consonant alliterate in Old English. And a word beginning with any vowel alliterates with any other word beginning with a vowel. This alliterative meter was conquered by the rhyming measures brought in by the Normans. Strangely enough, it made a glorious reappearance in the 14th century in Piers Plowman and other poems, but the revival was not lasting. Its supremacy had gone. There are four manuscript books which contain the greater part of Anglo Saxon poetry. The first, Beowulf. Beowulf is preserved in a manuscript written about A.D. 1000, and now in the British Museum. The manuscript was once in the possession of Lawrence Nowell, a 16th century pioneer in Anglo-Saxon studies. He has written his name on the manuscript and the date, 1563. Of its earlier history, we know nothing. In the 17th century, the manuscript found its way into the collection formed by Sir Robert Cotton. In 1705, Wanley, in his catalogue of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts, mentioned the poem, and said it described wars between a Dane, Beowulf, and the Swedes, a description which shows that the real contents of the poem were not yet understood. About a quarter of a century later, the poem was nearly destroyed by fire. Thorkelin, an Icelander, near the close of the 18th century, came to England, copied the manuscript himself, and caused another copy to be made. He spent years in preparing an edition only to have his translation and notes destroyed during the English bombardment of Copenhagen in 1807. The copy, however, of the manuscript escaped, and in 1815,
1: his edition at last appeared. Among the other contents of the Beowulf manuscript is Judith. 2. Genesis, Exodus, Daniel, Christ,
0: and Satan are contained in a manuscript in the Bodleian Library. It once belonged to Archbishop Usher, who gave it to Franz Junius, a Huguenot scholar who came to England in 1620. Junius printed the poems in 1655, and afterwards presented the manuscript to the University of Oxford. Three, the Exeter Book was given by Leofric, Bishop of Devon and Cornwall, and Chancellor to Edward the Confessor, to Exeter Cathedral, where it still remains. Wanley was the first scholar to give an account of the book. The Exeter book was not printed until 1842. The following poems form part of the contents of the Exeter book. Christ, Juliana, Guthlac, The Phoenix,
1: Whale, Panther, Riddles, The Wanderer, The Seafarer, The Arts of Men, The Fates of Men, Gnomic Verses, The Soul's Address to the Body, Part 1, Widsith, Deor, The Wife's Lament, The Husband's Message, The Ruin.
0: Number 4. The Vercelli book is preserved in the Cathedral Library at Vercelli in northern Italy. It has probably been there for six or seven centuries. How this book of Anglo-Saxon writings found its way to Italy, we do not know. The manuscript contains the following poems. Andreas, The Fates of the Apostles,
1: The Soul's Address to the Body, The Dream of the Rude, Elaine. All right, guys, that's Professor Gordon's introduction
0: to Anglo-Saxon poetry. I hope you found a few things informative in there. I really like that he talked about the Norman Conquest and how that totally changed the shape of English poetry. And also he talks about where we get most of um, this stuff from. So a lot of it has been preserved almost by chance uh, through the centuries. But of course, we've also lost so much um, due to unfortunate circumstances. What I'm going to do now is read three poems I personally really enjoy, and I hope you guys do too. Each poem will be prefaced slightly by Dr. Gordon's notes, where he just talks about a little bit of the background to the poem and who the author is and what they're saying, and then we'll jump into the poem. So if you have some mead, now's a good time to get it. If you have a fireplace, get it roaring, and let's go to the mead hall and listen to some Anglo-Saxon poetry.
1: The first up is Deor.
0: Deor is the lament of a minstrel who has been supplanted in his lord's favor by a rival singer. He seeks comfort by recalling old, unhappy, far-off things, and in the refrain, which is found only here and in Wolfe and Edwicker, in old English poetry. He expresses his hope that his trouble may pass, as the troubles of men before him have done. The poem is interesting not only because of the refrain, but also because it refers to stories which were well known in England, but which have not been preserved for us in English poems. Wayland, the famous smith of Teutonic legend, was carried into captivity by Nethad, but he avenged himself and escaped. Beadohild, the daughter of Nethad, was outraged by Wayland, but bore a mighty son, Widya. Widya is referred to in Waldhera as receiving a reward for aiding Theodric. The Geet's love for Meithild is apparently one of the many stories which have been lost. Among the stories which gathered round the historical Theodric was a story of his 30 years' exile. Probably the passage in Deor refers to this. The rule of Eomanrich was oppressive to men, but death ended his sovereignty. Thinking of these old tales, Deor hopes that he may not always be an unhappy wanderer. Wayland, the resolute warrior, had knowledge of exile. He suffered hardships. Sorrow and longing he had for companions. Wintry, cold, exile. Often he found woes after Neithad put compulsion upon him. Supple bonds of sinew upon a more excellent man. That passed away. So may this. Her brother's death was not so sore upon Beato'hild's mind as her own state, when she had clearly seen that she was with child. She could never think with a light heart of what must come of that, that passed away, so may this. Many of us have heard that the Geats' love for Maythild grew boundless, that his grievous passion wholly reft him of sleep. That passed away, so may this. Theodric ruled for thirty years the stronghold of the Merovingians. That was known to many. That passed away, so may this. We have heard of the wolfish mind of Eormanrich. He held wide sway in the kingdom of the Goths. He was a savage king. Many a warrior sat, bound by sorrow, expecting woe, often wishing his kingdom should be overcome. That passed away. So may this. The sad-minded man sits bereft of joys. There is gloom in his mind. It seems to him that his portion of sufferings is endless. Then he may think that throughout this world the wise lord brings many changes. To many a man he grants honor, certain fame, to some a sorrowful portion. I will say this of myself, that once I was a minstrel of the Harinugas, dear to my lord, Deor was my name. For many years I had a good office, a gracious lord, until now, Heorenda, a man skilled in song, has received my land, that the Protector of Warriors formerly gave me. That passed away. So may this. The Wanderer The Wanderer is an elegy uttered by one who had formerly known happiness and honor in his lord's hall. Now his lord is dead, and he has lost his post. He has become a wanderer who knows that sorrow's crown of sorrow is remembering happier things. Often, the solitary man prays for favor, for the mercy of the Lord, though, sad at heart, he must needs stir with his hands for a weary while, the icy sea across the watery ways, must journey the paths of exile, settled in truth is fate. So spoke the wanderer, mindful of hardships, of cruel slaughters, of the fall of kinsmen. Often I must bewail my sorrows in my loneliness at the dawn of each day. There is none of living men now to whom I dare speak my heart openly. I know for a truth that it is a noble custom for a man to bind fast the thoughts of his heart, to treasure his broodings. Let him think as he will. Nor can the weary in mood resist fate, nor does the fierce thought avail anything. Wherefore those eager for glory often bind fast in their secret hearts a sad thought. So I, sundered from my native land, far from noble kinsmen, often sad at heart, had to fetter my mind, when in years gone by the darkness of the earth covered my gold friend, and I went thence in wretchedness from wintry care upon me over the frozen waves, gloomily sought the hall of a treasure-giver wherever I could find him, far or near, who might know me in the mead hall or comfort me left without friends. Treat me with kindness. He knows who puts it to the test how cruel a comrade is sorrow for him who has few dear protectors. His is the path of exile. In no wise the twisted gold, a chill body, in no wise the riches of the earth. He thinks of retainers in hall and the receiving of treasure, of how in his youth his gold friend was kind to him at the feast. The joy has all perished. Wherefore he knows this who must long forego the counsels of his dear lord and friend, when sorrow and sleep together often bind the poor solitary man. It seems to him in his mind that he clasps and kisses his lord, and lays hands and head on his knee, as when erstwhile in past days he was near the gift throne. Then the friendless man wakes again, sees before him the dark waves, the seabirds bathing, spreading their feathers, Frost and snow falling, mingled with hail. Then heavier are the wounds in his heart. Sore for his beloved. Sorrow is renewed. Then the memory of kinsmen crosses his mind. He greets them with songs. He gazes on them eagerly. The companions of warriors swim away again. The souls of sailors bring there not many known songs. Care is renewed in him who must needs send very often his weary mind over the frozen waves. And thus, I cannot think why in this world my mind becomes not overcast when I consider all the life of earls, how of a sudden they have given up hall, courageous retainers. So this world each day passes and falls, for a man cannot become wise till he has his share of years in the world. A wise man must be patient, not overpassionate, nor over-hasty of speech, nor over-weak or rash in war, nor over-fearful, nor over-glad, nor over-covetous, never over-eager to boast, ere he has full knowledge. A man must bide his time when he boasts in his speech until he knows well in his pride whither the thoughts of the mind will turn. A wise man must see how dreary it will be when all the riches of this world stand waste as in different places throughout this world walls stand, blown upon by winds, hung with frost, the dwellings in ruins. The wine halls crumble, the rulers lie low, bereft of joy. The mighty warriors have all fallen in their pride by the wall. War carried off some, bore them on far paths. One the raven bore away over the high sea. One the grey wolf gave over to death. One an earl with sad face hid in the earth cave. Thus did the creator of men lay waste this earth till the old work of giants stood empty, free from the revel of castle dwellers. Then he who has thought wisely of the foundation of things and who deeply ponders this dark life wise in his heart often turns his thoughts to the many slaughters of the past and speaks these words. Whither has gone the horse? Whither has gone the man? Whither has gone the giver of treasure? Whither has gone the place of feasting? Where are the joys of Hall? Alas, the bright cup! Alas, the warrior in his corslet! Alas, the glory of the prince! How that time has passed away, has grown dark under the shadow of night, as if it had never been. Now in the place of dear warriors stands a wall, wondrous high, covered with serpent shapes. The might of the ashwood spears has carried off the earls, the weapon greedy for slaughter. A glorious fate... The storms beat upon these rocky slopes. The falling storm binds the earth, the terror of winter. Then comes darkness. The night shadow casts gloom, sends from the north fierce hailstorms to the terror of men. Everything is full of hardship in the kingdom of earth. The decree of fate changes the world under the heavens. Here, possessions are transient. Here, friends are transient. Here, man is transient. Here woman is transient. All this firm-set earth becomes empty. So spoke the wise man in his heart, and sat apart in thought. Good is he who holds his faith, nor shall a man ever show forth too quickly the sorrow of his breast, except he, the earl, first know how to work its cure bravely. Well is it for him who seeks mercy, comfort from the Father in heaven, where for us all, security stance. The Seafarer The Seafarer is taken by some critics to be a dialogue in which an old sailor tells of the lonely sufferings of life at sea, and is answered by a youth who urges that it is the hardness of life which makes it attractive. The poem, however, may be a monologue, in which the speaker tells of his sufferings, but also admits the fascination of the sea. The mood of contempt for the luxuries of land, and his yearning to set forth on the voyage, lead him to think of the future life, and the fleeting nature of earthly pomps and joys. I can utter a true song about myself, tell of my travels, how in toilsome days I often suffered a time of hardship how I have borne bitter sorrow in my breast, made trial of many sorrowful abodes on ships. Dread was the rolling of the waves. There the hard night watch at the boat's prow was often my task, when it tosses by the cliffs. Afflicted with cold, my feet were fettered by frost, by chill bonds. There my sorrows, hot round my heart, were sighed forth. Hunger within rent the mind of the sea-weary man. The man who fares most prosperously on land Knows not how I, careworn Have spent a winter as an exile On the ice-cold sea Cut off from kinsmen Hung round with icicles The hail flew in showers I heard naught there Save the sea-booming The ice-cold billow At times the song of the swan I took my gladness in the cry of the gannet And the sound of the curlew Instead of the laughter of men In the screaming gull Instead of the drink of mead there storms beat upon the rocky cliffs. There the turn with icy feathers answered them, full often with dewy-winged eagles screamed around. No protector could comfort the heart in its need. And yet he who has the bliss of life, who, proud and flushed with wine, suffers few hardships in the city, little believes how I often in weariness had to dwell in the ocean path. The shadow of night grew dark. Snow came from the north. Frost bound the earth, Hail fell on the ground, Coldest of grain. And yet, The thoughts of my heart are now stirred That I myself should make trial of the high streams, Of the tossing of the salt waves. The desire of the heart Always exhorts to venture forth, That I may visit the land of strange people far hence. And yet, there is no man on earth so proud, Nor so generous of his gifts, Nor so bold in youth, No so daring in his deeds, nor with a Lord so gracious unto him that he has not always anxiety about his seafaring as to what the Lord will bestow upon him. His thoughts are not of the harp, nor of receiving rings, nor of delight in a woman, nor of joy in the world, nor of aught else save the rolling of the waves. But he who sets out on the waters ever feels longing. The groves put forth blossoms, cities grow beautiful, the fields are fair, the world revives. All these urge the heart of the eager-minded man to a journey, him who thus purposes to fare far on the ways of the flood. Likewise, the cuckoo exhorts with sad voice, the harbinger of summer sings, bodes bitter sorrow to the heart. The man knows not the prosperous being, what some of those endure who most widely pace the paths of exile and yet my heart is now restless in my breast my mind is with the sea flood over the whale's domain it fares widely over the face of the earth comes again to me eager and unsatisfied the lone flyer screams resistlessly urges the heart to the whale way over the stretch of seas Wherefore, the joys of the Lord are more inspiring for me than this dead, fleeting life on earth. I have no faith that earthly riches will abide for ever. Each one of three things is ever uncertain ere its time comes. Illness, or age, or hostility will take life away from a man doomed and dying. Wherefore, the praise of living men who shall speak after he is gone, the best of fame after death for every man, is that he should strive ere he must depart, Work on earth with bold deeds against the malice of fiends, against the devil, so that the children of men may later exalt him, and his praise live afterwards among the angels, forever and ever. The joy of life eternal, delight amid angels. The days have departed. All the pomps of earth's kingdom, kings or emperors, or givers of gold, are not as of yore, when they wrought among themselves greatest deeds of glory, and lived in most lordly splendor. This host has all fallen. The delights have departed. Weaklings live on and possess this world. Enjoy it by their toil. Glory is laid low. The nobleness of the earth ages and withers. As now every man does throughout the world. Old age comes on him. His face grows pale. Gray-haired he laments. He knows that his former friends, the sons of princes, have been laid in the earth. Then, When life leaves him, his body can neither taste sweetness, nor feel pain, nor stir a hand, nor ponder in thought. Though he will strew the grave with gold, bury his brother with various treasures beside dead kinsmen, that will not go with him. To the soul full of sins, the gold which it hoards while it lives here, gives no help in the face of God's wrath. Great is the fear of God, whereby the earth turns. He established the mighty plains, the face of the earth, and the sky above. Foolish is he who fears not his Lord. Death comes to him unexpected. Blessed is he who lives humbly. Mercy comes to him from heaven. God establishes that heart in him because he trusts in his strength. One must check a violent mind and control it with firmness and be trustworthy to men, pure in ways of life. Every man should show moderation in love towards a friend and enmity towards a foe. Fate is more strong, God more mighty than any man's thought. Let us consider where we possess our home and then think how we may come thither and let us then also attempt to win there to the eternal bliss where life springs from God's love, joy in heaven. Thanks be forever to the Holy One because he, the Prince of Glory, the Lord Everlasting, has honored us. Amen. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining me today in the Mead Hall in this introduction to Anglo-Saxon poetry. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Bit of a longer episode today, um, but I hope it was worth your while. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Anglo Saxon Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.